It's a topic that's generated a lot of conversation lately. Northwest Louisiana's music heritage and how, if at all, that heritage shapes the past, present, and future of Shreveport, Louisiana. This is the All Y'all Podcast. I'm Sarah Ebear. And I'm Chris J. In this mini-series that you're listening to now, we're delighted to partner with Louisiana Public Broadcasting for five episodes exploring the cultural impact of the Louisiana Hayride, a country music showcase that was broadcast from Shreveport from 1948 until 1960. The Hayride helped launch or redefine the careers of Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and other icons of American music. Last week, Sarah chatted with Dr. Tracy Laird, who literally wrote the book on the Hayride, Louisiana Hayride, Radio and Roots Music Along the Red River. It's a great companion to this series, and we highly recommend that you check this book out. In this episode, you'll be able to drop in on our conversation with the one and only Robert Gentry, who we were introduced to through his daughter, Verity. Verity saw our call for stories from the Louisiana Hayride days and introduced us to her dad, who goes by, get this, Big Rob. Big Rob is a natural born storyteller, so it didn't take much to get him started. <laughs> to begin our conversation, we asked Big Rob about his first memory of music. I was born and raised at the little town of Marthaville in Natchitoches Parish. We were poor people that lived way back in the woods, scratched for a living, and uh, in 1946, I was six years old, and my daddy saved enough money to buy a radio. He ordered it from Sears and Roebuck, and we looked forward to the day we would receive it through the post office. And it came one day, and it was a big cabinet-type radio. It came with a big battery to operate it. So my daddy brought it in and unwrapped that thing and hooked a battery to it, and we found out it had to have an aerial in order to pick up radio signals. So my daddy had some old copper wire and he ran a wire from one tree to another tree and hooked it to the radio. So mind you, I was six years old and the first time he turned that thing on, I was absolutely amazed. So I looked at that big cabinet and I said, you know, they've got to have little people inside that thing doing all that stuff. So I went around to the back of it and looked in, and I didn't see any little people, but I saw those tubes lighting up, which also fascinated. Anyway, we listened to KWKH radio in the beginning, and we, we just were fascinated by music. It just meant so much to us. And at that time, 46, 47, 48, KWKH was broadcasting live country music shows early in the morning. We would listen to those radio programs early in the morning, and those guys that sang were kind of like members of our family. I mean, we just looked up to them, even though we didn't know them. But anyway, 1948 was a, a good year for our family. Number one, Earl K. Long was elected governor of Louisiana, and second, the Louisiana Hayride started. And the Hayride instilled in me a love for music that has stayed with me all these years. And I would hate to think about life without music. It just has meant that much to me. And I have that love today of, of country music especially. 
But anyway, as we were growing up, poor folks out in the country, there were four things that meant a lot to us. Number one was Jesus. Number two was Governor Earl Long. Number three was Sears and Roebuck. And number four was KWKH in the Louisiana Hayride. <laughs> I can tell that those four things have really shaped your life. Well, they have. No, no question about it. <laughs> well, you know, so right before we came in, you were telling me a hilarious story about a time that you got to see Elvis. Okay. And I would love to be able to get that on tape. So tell me, how did you come to the show that time? Okay. Uh, first of all, when, when I was in my teens, Elvis was on the Louisiana Hayride. And, of course, we didn't have a car, didn't have a way to come to Shreveport. That would be about like going to the moon for us. But anyway, my daddy had a radio, and I listened to the Louisiana Hayride every Saturday night. We lived in an old two-story house, and I would take the radio to bed with me, put it up by my ear, and turn it down as low as I could because I knew I would be in trouble if I woke my daddy up. But anyway, I listened to, to the Louisiana Hayride, and when Elvis came on, they would put him on at 10.30, and the Hayride would go until 11 o'clock. And I never heard such hooping and hollering, and uh, folks, the fans just went crazy over Elvis. And I can remember him singing all those songs, and I was just fascinated with what he could do to an audience. And I guess I used a lot of my imagination to, to figure out what was happening. But I knew it was happening, and I never thought I would get to see Elvis. But in 1975 and 76, he came to Hearst Coliseum, and I was fortunate enough to see him both shows. Well, Elvis died in 76, I believe, and I, I saw him one year before he died. And as luck would have it, uh, my family and I got tickets on the front row center stage. Couldn't believe it. But anyway, we were there, and Elvis's band warmed up the audience, which didn't need warming up. But anyway, he wa they warmed him up for about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then they brought Elvis out. And I never such a, saw such a stampede of women in my life coming to the front stage. There were old women, there were young women, there were ugly women, there were pretty women, there were big women, there were little women. I never saw anything like it. Anyway, they covered the front of the stage, and it was so interesting to watch. And here comes a herd of police out of the backstage telling all those women to go sit down. And Elvis, he was just having a wonderful time singing and looking at all of it. So the police got the women going back to their seats, and there was a pretty blonde. I mean, she was pretty. She was young, and she was well-built, and she caught my eye as she walked up. And she told me, she said, if you'll let me sit in, my la in your lap, I'll do anything I can for you. And I said, that would just be fine with me, but there's my wife two, two seats down. You'll have to get her permission. So the young blonde got up and ran off at that point. What did did she talk to your wife? No. <laughs> Have you ever told that story to your wife? Yeah. What did yeah, she make she, of it? She just laughed about it. <laughs> <laughs> she knew it was all in fun. 
So I'm curious, um, through talking to you and talking to your daughter, Verity, I learned that you hitchhiked to Shreveport a lot. When did you start doing that? Well, when I went to Northwestern State University in Natchitoches in 1958, I didn't have a car, but I had a love for country music. So I met a young guy from Manny who also was going to college. His name was Rodney Self. And he loved country music, too. And he had an old 1937 blue Chevrolet coupe. So we got together and decided we were going to go to the hayride. This was the first time we went. He had the car, and I had a little bit of money to buy gas. So on Saturday afternoon, we took off for Shreveport. And we got to the hayride and enjoyed the show that night. It was over about 11 o'clock. So we got in his car, and I thought we were headed back to Natchitoches. And he said, uh, Gentry, there's something I forgot to tell you. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't have any headlights on my car. So I said, what are we going to do? So he cranked it up, and we went down uh, Uri Drive and hit Highway 1 by the light of the street lights. We drove that far hoping the police would not see us. So at that point in time, city limits went to 70th Street where it crossed Highway 1. Just beyond 70th Street was a cotton field. So we got to the cotton field, and he pulled over, and we slept in the car until morning. Then we went on to Natchitoches. And uh, he never, we came to, to the hayride quite a few times after that, in that old car, and he never got the headlights fixed, and I've never found out why. <laughs> would you Would you always sleep on the yeah, side of the road on the way back? Yeah, we would always go to that cotton patch and pull off and go to sleep. <laughs> Nobody ever bothers. That cotton patch is probably a target now. Yeah, probably I think so. it's the Sam's Club. <laughs> something out there. <laughs> Mr. Gentry, you, you, you went a few times, he said, to the Hayride. Right. One thing, you know, we read about the Hayride in history books, and, and we hear about it in films and television, et cetera, but none of us can go there anymore. Right. Uh, one thing I, I, I don't remember ever having been told is just what was it like? Like what, as far as, you know, from the time you walked in the door to finding your seats, et cetera, can you just share your memories of what the Hayride was like? Okay. To me, because I loved country music so much, it was probably almost like dying and going to heaven every time I ever went. I loved it so much. And uh, sometimes we were, and it was just fascinating. It just kept my interest. I loved every artist that was ever on it. And compared to the Grand Ole Opry, the audience participation for the Hayride was so much more, so much greater. You know, people hooped and hollered and stomped and clapped and stood up, and it was just, it was just so much fun. And sometimes we were lucky enough to make our way either to the side of the stage or to backstage and get to meet some of the artists. And oh, that was just a wonderful feeling. I heard that you were really good at that, that you were well, really good at worming your way in backstage. I've, I've had a lot of experience in trying. Okay. <laughs> you, I've also heard, and forgive me, we, we, we've, we've obviously talked to some folks about you. Okay. <laughs> but I've heard that the, that the objects that some of us in Shreveport have been lucky enough to see in the Hayride Museum kind of thing that's in the municipal 
that those some of those came from you. Is that true? That's correct. At one time, I had a museum in Manny, and uh, one of the main things that I had in it was country music memorabilia, and uh, I collected for years. And a lot of as I grew older, a lot of people in country music became friends of mine, so they were glad to give me things. And uh, a little divorce caused the museum to close, and so I gave a lot of stuff to the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium, and I sold some of it to people who lived around here. So um, can you tell us about one of your favorite items that you donated to the museum and how you got it? I guess one of the favorite items I had was a little character called Cosmo. And Horace Logan, who founded the Louisiana Hayride, he had a disc jockey show on KWKH, and his partner was this little guy called Cosmo. And how he would get the voice of Cosmo is to record it on a tape recorder and run it at a faster speed. And they would have conversations. Anyway, later in Horace's life, I became friends with him. He lived at Sea Drift, Texas, and I went down to see him a few times. And he told me about Cosmo, and he said, would you like to have him? I said, man, I'd love to have him. And he just gave him to me. Wow, what a gift. Yeah. And I ended up letting Joey Ken have him, so Joey has Cosmo nowadays. That's Sweet. awesome. One of the items that really blew me away in the, in the museum is Roy Acuff's toy or model car yeah and that brings up i think you were you were i mean friends with yeah. roy acuff I, roy acuff was always my favorite going back to radio in 1948 he ran for governor of tennessee as a republican and i kept up with that election just like it was at my back doorstep through radio and when he lost i was eight years old and it meant so much to me i cried Wow. And uh, that Saturday night, we listened to the Grand Ole Opry, and Roy was up there. And I said, you know, that's a heck of a man that can lose a governor's election on Tuesday and sing country music on Saturday night. Made an impression on me. But anyway, later in life, I got to be good friends with him. And you know how you meet some people and immediately take a liking to them? That's the way we were to each other. And... uh he gave me a lot of stuff. He gave me everything I ever asked for through the years to go in my museum. And back when I first met him, he told me, he said, Robert, you know what I like about you? And I said, no, what? He said, you never asked me for anything. And then I started asking him for all this <laughs> souvenirs. Like it was an invitation. Yeah. You were like, oh, I didn't realize I could. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, anyway, he always accommodated me. Amazing. Do you remember any other nights in particular going to the Hayride that really stick out in your memory? Uh, yes, one time. This this is a story about Johnny Horton. Uh, in 1959, he had the number one song in the country, The Battle of New Orleans. And I mean, he was riding the top of the tide. So he came, I was a student at Northwestern in Natchitoches, and he came to Natchitoches and put on a show. So a friend of mine, Ivy Ray Scott, and I went to the show, and we weaseled ourselves backstage again and got to meet him. And he was so nice to us. He talked to us, and 
We t- he talked to us that night, and we talked about him for days, about how nice he was to us. So a few weeks later, the Louisiana Hayride was going to have a show at the Free State Park Shopping Center. And so by golly, we decided we were going, and we hitchhiked from Natchitoches to Shreveport on Saturday afternoon and made our way to the Free, Free State Park Shopping Center. Don't know how we got there, but we did. And they had a big 18-wheeler flatbed trailer for a stage. So Scott and I positioned ourselves right at the edge of the trailer by the steps going up to the stage because we wanted to see Johnny Horton when he got there. And we were standing there watching the other performers. And off in the distance, we heard the sound of sirens. So we just kind of looked at each other and wondered, what was happening. So they got closer and closer, and I told Scott, I said, I bet you that's Johnny Horton coming. So lo and behold, in a few minutes, here came two police escorts, one in front of a big white Cadillac, another one behind that big white Cadillac. It pulled right up to the stage close to where we were standing. Lo and behold, Johnny Horton was driving, and he got out and he headed for the stage. But he saw us standing there, and he walked over and shook hands with us and said, how are things going at Northwestern? And he remembered us, and we were floored. Wow. And uh, we talked about that for weeks. And when we talked, now we still talk about it. <laughs> maybe he should have run for elected office, too, because that's a good skill that's a to good, have. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. so. The, the hayride is something that, interesting it comes and goes among the local population but i don't think i've ever seen younger people kind of as proud of it as they are right now i mean people are taking an interest in what all happened here again in ways that i don't know if they always have maybe i'm wrong but what role do you think there's what do you think the hayride means to our our community or the region well unfortunately i think that the hayride was a wonderful thing in its time And I think it's time just ran out. And unfortunately, I don't think it can ever be revived. I hope it can. I pray that it can. But anyway, it it meant so much to so many people that would come from Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. Uh, I can remember the MCs on the Hayride would always, every show would say, is there anybody here from Texas? And the crowd went wild because there were so many people there from Texas. And uh, I just have so many fond memories of going. And I think that's what people have now, the fond memories. And I'm glad that the history and memories of the Hayride are being recorded and filmed so other people will know what we were blessed to experience. So... Part of the way that we have come to know you is through your work on books related to the Hayride and our regional history. And so Chris was telling you earlier that um, he managed to pick up one of the last copies of your collection of Louisiana Hayride ads. Right. Can you tell us about what, what motivated you to even put the book together? Okay, I have, I've always been a collector, sometimes to my detriment. But my daddy ran a newspaper clipping service. And it it's prime. He did, he subscribed and read 200 newspapers a day. 
So I, I helped him in the business. And any time I would ever see anything about the Louisiana Hayride or the artists that were on the Hayride, I cut it out and made, I made me a scrapbook. So as I grew older, the scrapbooks were kind of deteriorating a little bit. So I copied all the articles out of it, and I put the scrapbooks on eBay to sell, make a little extra money. And I was surprised how much I got for them. I think I had three scrapbooks. I was surprised how much I got for them and how much interest there was. So I said to myself, Self, you need to go back and make a, a books of all those articles about the Louisiana Hayride. So I went over to Northwestern to the Cammie uh, Henry Research Center, and I went through all of the Shreveport Times and journals uh, that were printed at the time the Hayride was in existence, and I copied those articles. And when I got through doing all that, plus the articles I already had, I had enough for two volumes, and I called it uh, The Louisiana Hayride, The Glory Years, 1948 to 60, and those were the years that the Hayride was produced every Saturday night. And I printed, I can't remember how many copies, and uh, I sold them, and I believe you got the last of the copies. <laughs> I did. I hope you don't mind me prompting you, because I see you got... Um, you have something on in front of you here. You have some notes. And one of the pieces of uh, the legend about the Louisiana Hayride that I've always heard, and I'm going to tell you my wrong version, I want you to set me straight, is that Johnny Horton and Johnny Cash owned a fishing lure company in Natchitoches. Okay. Uh, I was working for the Natchitoches Enterprise newspaper, and I was a stringer for the Alexandria Daily Town Talk. So Johnny Horton owned... Cane River Bait Company, which he put in in an old chicken house on Granny Court Road in Natchitoches. So I found out when he was going to be in town, made arrangements to go out and interview him for the Natchitoches Enterprise and the town talk. So I went out. He uh, gave me a, a tour of the bait plant and how the baits were made. And his big bait was called Old Fireball. And he had another one called Galloping A. And it was made out of aluminum. And it looked like a heart with some feathers and hooks on it. And if you threw it out in the lake and started reeling it in, it looked like it was galloping across the water. And that's how it got its name. Now, I don't know how Old Fireball got its name. But anyway, I, I interviewed Johnny that day. He gave me some pictures, and uh, I took some pictures of him. And, but the thing I treasured most, he gave me one old fireball. And he made that bait in different colors. I think it was 12 different colors. But the one he gave me was bright green and yellow. And it was in a little plastic tube is what he packaged them in and he had a little flyer in there that told you how to use the bait so anyway I was so glad to get that bait and so honored that he would take the time to let me interview him so I was doing a little fishing at that time and he bragged about fireballs so much and what a good bait it was he said 
fish will almost jump in your boat if you just got the bait in there. So I said, well, I got a rod and reel, and I'm going to go try that bait. So we had a place called Locks Pond up close to Marthaville where my home was. And I took it over there late one evening, and I tied, tied on fireball onto my line, and I took my reel back and threw it just as hard as I could. And I knew I was going to catch a big bass. Lo and behold, I didn't have no fireball tied up there good enough, and it landed somewhere way out in the lake. Probably worth a cool $1,200 or something. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> okay, but back to your question. I told you all that to get to your question. It's my understanding that Johnny Horton and Johnny Cash were friends that liked to fish, that they visited Cane River Bait Company together, but Cane River Bait Company was wholly owned and operated by Johnny Horton. I've always heard that Johnny Cash would like leave from fishing to get to the hayride, you know, like literally at the time he was supposed to be on stage. So Johnny Cash was just perpetually late to the hayride because he was at some fishing hole somewhere in the area because he liked the fishing around right. here. Well, Johnny Horton was an excellent fisherman, I'm told. And uh, on the hayride, they would take a coffee cup and somebody would hold it on one side of the stage and Johnny would get his uh, reel on the other side of the stage and throw that bait in a coffee cup. That's just how good he was. I was listening earlier this morning to some Johnny Horton recordings, and they introduced him as the singing fisherman. Right. <laughs> and all of this makes a whole lot more sense, because they cut him off, because he'll be like, I was fishing for some bass, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, all right, we just need you to sing a song yeah, now. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> He'd rather be talking about fishing. Yeah. Another funny little story about Johnny Horton. This place, Locks Pond, close to Marthaville, an old man named Lawrence Jennings lived there. He was kind of a uh, carer, the man that cared for the pond. He was a rough old cuss. And uh, so Johnny Horton pulled up one day. He'd heard about Locke's Pond. And he pulled up one day, stopped, and asked Mr. Jennings, would it be all right if he went fished in the pond? So Mr. Jennings said, who are you? And he said, I'm Johnny Horton. And Mr. Jennings said, you a blankety-blank liar. You're not Johnny Horton because I just heard Johnny Horton singing on the radio. <laughs> yeah, that was me. Yeah, yeah. I came straight I just here. Sang, yeah. Yeah. He, he just didn't know about records. Unreal. You've lived such a full life, and I feel like a lot of your adventures started because of the Hayride. What, what's the legacy of the Hayride mean to you? Well, the singers on the Hayride were just so important to me and you know i envision them as being some of the prettiest girls and most handsome men i'd ever seen in my life and their spangled suits i wish i could afford something like that and uh i just thought they lived such glamorous lives and it was just fascinating when i got to see them then as i grew older I found out some of them were just as ugly as I am. And some of them were scratching the way we scratch just to hold <laughs> on and make, make a living. But their lives were glamorous. What they did, they were committed and dedicated to it. So I think I learned from that to be committed and dedicated to what you're doing. It doesn't have to be music. It can be anything. 
And I think those guys enjoyed it, and they gave it everything they had. And I've tried in life to enjoy whatever I do, make the best of it, and put everything I had, put my heart into it. And so I think those are some of the things that I learned from it. And, of course, the, the main thing that I got from it is my love of music and what music has meant to me and my wife and my friends and my children. And once again, I just have, have, hate to think about life without music. I think that's a beautiful thing for us to end this interview on. Thank I you. could talk to you all day. We'll have to get together we'll again. Yes, yes, I'm looking please, forward to it. Please. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your memories. Thank you all so much. I can't tell you how much this means to me. Oh, it's been a blast. Yeah, the feeling's mutual. Thank you. That was Robert Gentry of Marthaville, Louisiana, recorded in November of 2019 at Cohab in downtown Shreveport. Next up in our series of interviews is Joey Kent, who has published two books on the Louisiana Hayride and who oversees the Louisiana Hayride archives. Joey will share some stories from a completely different perspective on the Hayride days. Once again, we'd like to thank our partners for this series, Louisiana Public Broadcasting, as well as our sponsors at Maryland's Place, Maccentric, and Rhino Coffee. Thank you to AJ Haynes for our Slim Whitman-inspired theme music and Alexander Holman for mixing those lovely tunes. AJ Haynes' participation is courtesy of New West Records. Thanks for listening. And if you're not a subscriber already, please subscribe to All Y'all wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you could do us a tremendous favor and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it too. If you'd like to discuss these episodes with us, connect with us on Twitter or Instagram where we're at All Y'all Podcast. We'd love to hear from y'all. You can also hear some unforgettable stories about music in our podcast archives at www.allyallblog.com. A great one, for example, is Winston Hall's story entitled Look at All the Little Black Dots. It's the hilarious memoir of how Winston became a professional piano player. Just go to www.allyallblog.com and get ready to laugh because it's hilarious. Thanks for listening, y'all. And Chris, I love the way you say memoir. Memoir. One day, maybe we'll make a memoir about making these episodes. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye. Yeehaw. <laughs>